0: kind of miss the amen's at the end of the song so i i just add my own amen you know and kind of a amen it's kind of a exclamation point you know <laughs> a verbal exclamation point are you by grace a citizen of zion it did you see the description of life in god's city it's kind of a reflection of what paul wrote about you know when we have good governors and good Kings and they're doing their job. That we live with dignity and security and peace and godliness and so forth. Unfortunately, human governments never quite reach that that um, that level. And that fact, I was talking to someone after the service today. That fact should make us long for the coming of King Jesus. He is the King who rules justly. He is the King of Zion, and the king of nations. And one day the nations will acknowledge his blessed, gentle reign. May that day not be far off. Let's turn, well, first of all, let's pray that the Lord would give us understanding of the Scriptures. Father, we come to you today and we, tonight, and we pray that by your Spirit you would open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts, that we would see what your word teaches, that we would hear the truth and the power of your word, and that we have hearts that are ready to believe and to form uh, to, to form our lives, our, our understanding according to your word. We live in a world that is full of falsehood, where lies seem to be flying around us every day, but your word teaches us truth. And we pray that our minds would be grounded in your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Psalm 126, one of the Songs of Ascent, as we've been studying the last couple of weeks, we had a a message that was kind of a general orientation to the Songs of Ascent. And uh, today and, and tomorrow, or next Sunday, we're going to look at uh, two specifically of the Songs of Ascent. Tonight, uh, Psalm 126. Next time, uh, Psalm 130, which begins, Out of the depths. Wow, talk about depressing. Out of the depths, and the person who writes that psalm is overwhelmed by the uh, the oppression and the sin and the the hardship of this world. But he cries to God, and God gives him hope. So, that is for next week. This week, though, Psalm one twenty-six. We've already sung it, and now let's read it. A song of Ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongues with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the uh, Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Here we end this reading of God's word. There's history behind many of the songs of sense. Remember, these were songs that were generally, not exclusively, but generally sung or chanted by uh, the people of Israel as they were going up to Jerusalem. You always go up to Jerusalem. First of all, Jerusalem's on a hill. Second of all, Jerusalem is the capital city as Zion is exalted, is high and lifted up. It is the place where God is worshiped. And it is a place where God reigns over his people. So we always go, no matter where you're coming from, you always go up to Jerusalem. And that's why these are songs of ascents. We're going up to Jerusalem. And the people would sing or chant these songs to each other as they are uh, making their journey toward Jerusalem. They are songs uh, that celebrate the communal life of the people of Israel. They're songs that celebrate the way God has dealt with Israel, uh, his covenants, his promises, his discipline even, and that's kind of one of the themes of this psalm. There is, There has been discipline, punishment, if you will. Not all discipline is easy. Sometimes discipline is unpleasant, and there have been times of discipline in Israel's history that the people are remembering. But they're also remembering that the Lord has been faithful to his promises. Notice how it begins. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. What could that possibly be talking about? Mm. Have you ever read the book of Judges? What's the theme in the book of Judges? And remember, we're a little less formal in the evening, so you can actually answer these questions if you want to if you huh, it's been a while, <laughs> yeah, ah, keyword cycle, cycle if you wanna remember a good mental picture to have to remember the theme of the book of judges, think of a judge in his judgely robes the robes of his office, riding on a motorcycle. Because the cycle the cycle—is is the main motif of the book of Judges. Now, what is that cycle? Well, they're God's people, they're living well, they're enjoying God's blessing, and as often happens when we are comfortable and we are full, our hearts grow cold. And so in the midst of their prosperity, they would often in their carelessness, turn to other gods, begin worshiping the gods of the nations around them that God had specifically warned them against doing, but they did it nonetheless. And so they would raise idols to Chemosh and Moloch and and, and the, the gods of the nations. And those idols demanded terrible sacrifices. You remember those names, Chemosh, Baal, the Asherim. Several of these gods, Moloch. Several of these gods demanded human sacrifice, which God specifically says is an abomination, an especially hateful thing in the sight of God, to bring your firstborn child to be in to to be burned alive on the altar of Moloch. You know, as glorious as the Bible sometimes. Glorious is uh, the things that the Bible sometimes teaches us. There are horrible things that the Bible tells us about too. The Bible gives us a really, a really powerful view of reality. It's not all happy. Sometimes there are terrible e- examples of evil that the Bible... But the people would, would fall into these things. And part of the cycle would be from comfort to idolatry. And then what? Judgment. The Lord would raise up a nation to come against them. The Lord would raise up the Assyrians or the Egyptians or uh, the Moabites or someone, the Philistines. Oh, the Philistines were a favorite. uh, To come against the people of Israel, to conquer them and to put them in subjection to them. You like the gods of the nations? I'll show you what the nations are like. And then, of course, part of that cycle is repentance. The people would awaken. There would be an awakening. There would be a, a repentance. God would raise up a judge to lead the people, not only leading them as kind of a civil in, in a civil manner, but leading them spiritually as well, calling them back to to the worship of the true and living God. And the people would repent, and God would restore them and liberate them from their oppressors. And that seems to be what is behind this psalm. The Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. These cycles, uh, particularly we, we learn about them in the book of Judges. It's not confined to Judges, though. The Lord often brought enemies against Israel as his means of disciplining the people for their idolatry. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. It's a good dream. But they are so giddy, so happy, so joyful in this restoration of the fortunes of Zion. It's almost like they're walking through a dream. And their mouths are filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. When the Lord restored us, now they're singing this song as they go up to Jerusalem to remember the feast days that the Lord had commanded—three major feast days each year—in which particularly the males of the of the families were were told to come to Jerusalem, offer sacrifices, and worship the Lord in the temple. What a great time to remember God's mercies! that it was God who awakened us to our sin, and God who sent us judges to lead us back to him, and God who restored our fortunes. And as we're walking to Jerusalem and remembering these things, our mouths are filled, our tongues are filled with laughter, and we're like people walking through a dream. One of the things that God had said to the people of Israel was, when you fall, and by the way, read the book of Deuteronomy. There's no doubt. You know, the book of Deuteronomy sometimes it's, well, if you do what is right, I will bless you. There's a couple of key chapters, I think it's 26, 27, somewhere in there. If you do what is wrong, if you you break my laws, if you break my covenant, I will judge you and I will raise up other nations to take you captive and I will... Turn the heavens to brass and dry up your grass, and you will have no crops and and you'll suffer if you if you disobey, if you obey blessing, if you disobey judgment. an interesting thing though, as Moses writes Deuteronomy, inspired by God to write us, he leaves the people in no doubt whatsoever as to what actually will happen in the future. You will disobey. You will be taken captive. You will suffer because of your sins. It's not maybe. You will do this. What's even more interesting in the book of Deuteronomy is that God promises that when they are captive, he will come to them again, and he will awaken them and change their hearts and restore them. Because Deuteronomy, while the word, the name Deuteronomy means second law, and our concept of law is that it's harsh and flexible and, 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 and a burden and so forth, the fact is that there's grace on every page of the book of Deuteronomy. God says, here's the formula, Here's how I, here's how I deal with you you're going to sin you're going to break my covenant but i will not abandon, and i will not abandon you i will and that's grace that's grace israel's history has a history of that playing out in the, throughout the years and the time of the judges lasted about 300 years until the time of saul was the first king. One of the things that God had said was, when when I judge you, the nations around you will see my judgments, and they will take note of the wickedness of God's people, the wickedness of Israel, and you will become like a proverb, a byword, an object lesson, as, as we would say today. You will be an object lesson. This is what happens to Israel. But notice in this psalm, it's exactly the opposite. The nations will see the restoration of Israel, and they will be amazed at God's grace and his mercy. And they will say, what will the nations say? Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. There's a a kind of a reflexive statement there. The nations say the Lord has done great things for them. We say the Lord has done great things for us. The Lord has done great things. He has remembered his people. He has not abandoned them. He will remember them. We like to think that we're the church. This can't happen to us. We're not like Israel. Anybody really believe that? That we could never fall? That we could never, as a church, fall away from the faith? That God could not judge as he judged Israel? Part of the reason we have the whole history of Israel in the Old Testament is an object lesson for us. It helps us understand how God deals with people, how God deals with his own people. I had the privilege, I guess I call it a privilege, a couple of weeks ago to preach two Sundays at a Presbyterian church that is part of the liberal mainline Presbyterian denomination. If you think we can't fall... And by the way, this is one of the more conservative congregations. They actually tried to leave the denomination and their presbytery wouldn't let them. Presbytery controls the property. And so basically it was, if you want to keep your building, you stay in the presbytery. You can't leave. I, I mean, essentially they're hostages, right? But even as... "Quote unquote, one of the more conservative congregations. Liberalism and unbelief have so infected them that the words I was speaking, I can, I, you can always tell a lot by uh, how your sermon's going. When you look at the congregation, if they're doodling, if they're you know looking at their watches, playing on their phones, and 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 so on, you really know they're they're not connecting at all. And by the way, all of you are looking at me right now." So. It's great. Um, they, You know you're not connecting with them. I was basically preaching to them a, a kind of a combination of some of the sermons I've preached here, because they're looking for a pastor, but also a little bit of Machen's liberalism in Christianity. It's the 100th anniversary of the publication of that book, and it's still a classic. It's still worth reading. But... Every book has a central theme, and Machen's central theme is that liberalism is not just a a different version of Christianity. It's an entirely different religion altogether. And I tried to show them that the liberalism that their denomination has bought into is not just a different kind of Christianity. But after point, after point, after point, what what you believe about God, what you believe about the Bible, and what you believe about Jesus Christ— has been so distorted by liberalism that it is not recognizable as Christianity. It is a different, naturalistic, humanistic religion. A few people, I could tell, were really responding. But the ma- vast majority of that congregation, it's not a very big congregation, but the majority of those, con- those people were completely disinterested I'm not sure I'm going to be asked back. It's okay. If you are ever tempted to think that we are Orthodox Presbyterians, we will never fall into unbelief. We will never betray the gospel. We will never turn our backs on God. If you think of that, Right up the hill, there's a little United Presbyterian Church that is an object lesson and warns you, it can happen. And it does happen. The Lord punishes His people when they turn their back on Him. But for His people his, pe- his true people he restores them it is not a punishment to their destruction but a punishment to their discipline in verse 4 it turns into a prayer restore our fortunes o lord like streams in the negev what's the negev the desert if you could see a map of israel you'd see that large part that what we call today the sinai peninsula of the sinai on the southern end of israel that's the negev that's the word in hebrew negev the desert when it rains in the, summer, in the in the in the time of rain just like a little like arizona the streams run the water fills up those dry creek beds and and run and the, the water nourishes the land most of the year though, they're dry stream beds, but they are refreshed when it rains. And that's what the Psalmist says here, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the desert. Now here's where I want us to really think. Those who reap those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Those who he who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. That's a statement of a truth of how God deals with his, with his people. There's a, an implied promise here. But it is a statement of reality. Remember how I said this morning, the Psalms are really important for developing our worldview, our view, our understanding of reality. And this is a a little statement of reality. To go forth sowing in tears, but at harvest time to go out reaping with joy. They who sow in tears shall reap in joy. I want you to turn to a passage in the New Testament, and it's the Beatitudes. It's in Matthew chapter 5, the beginning. It's the first part of the Sermon on the Mount. If we looked at the end of chapter 4, we'd see that Jesus is becoming more and more famous as he preaches, as he, as the, he heals people and does miracles. And, and especially as he preaches, he's attracting great crowds of people. And he, the, the end of chapter 4 tells us that he went around about the cities preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Well, chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the book of Matthew, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, is an example of the gospel of the kingdom. It's kind of a summary of the things that Jesus was teaching the people. As these great crowds came to him, verse five or chapter 5 begins, seeing the crowds, he went up to on the mountain. And when he had sat down, his disciples came to him, and here's how he instructed them, and it starts with the Beatitudes. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. How many of you want to be poor in spirit? That's well, not something that we actually seek after, is it? But notice what he says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Notice the pattern. Notice the pattern. Blessed are you, and many of these are negative things. Those who mourn, those who are poor in spirit, those who are persecuted, those who... And then he elaborates on that with a whole lengthy statement about uh, about persecution. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Those are things that fall under the category of sowing in tears. But then notice, with every one of them, there's a promise of something that's to come. The reward. The blessing. That's why they're called the Beatitudes. These are These are the blessings to those who live as Christ lives and as Christ teaches us to live. Because there is a time when the harvest comes in. There is a time promised when those who sow in tears will reap the harvest in joy. It's a biblical pattern. It, goes, it, it reaches through the Old Testament, through the book of Judges in particular, as an example. And it's embedded in the Sermon on the Mount in Jesus' teaching to his disciples about how they should live, how they can endure in the present time of sorrow, but look forward to victory and blessing in the future it is a promise. It is a pattern of how God deals with his people. We acknowledge our sins. We acknowledge that God disciplines us. As a loving father, the book of Hebrews tells us that no one enjoys discipline at the present time. You know, I can remember when dad took off his belt. I, I remember a time I was really being stubborn. I would not eat my food. I I I said, I don't like this. And I said it to my mother, who had been working to cook the dinner. I don't like this. I am not going to eat it. My mother's almost in tears. The next sound I heard was the belt. It was not pleasant. In fact, I think I was crying before the belt ever, ever hit, ever connected with the Nether regions. You've all had, you've all been there, haven't? Well, you know, today Dad would probably would have arrested for child abuse, but I will never forget that, and I never talked back to my mother again. Sowing in tears, reaping in joy, I came to appreciate what she did for our family. This is a pattern. So when you are overwhelmed and perhaps you have sinned and perhaps you sense that the hand of God on you for correction. Remember what Hebrews tells us. Even that correction is the sign of a loving father. If he didn't love you, he wouldn't discipline you. But he disciplines us for our good. And the pattern is to endure the pain, to endure the suffering of this age, to endure the hardships of this age, knowing that those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. God says that the fields are white for harvest, and I know there's a, a different emphasis in that statement. And he also says, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send forth workers into his field. Well, the work of sowing, of planting, the work of weeding the field and tending the field can be difficult work. But it's it's a work that's done in faith because you know there's a harvest. Let me change the example because Paul uses a similar example in Romans chapter 8 when he talks about the restoration of the people of God at the resurrection. He says the whole creation groans and travails like a woman in childbirth. Thankfully, I've never experienced that myself. I'm perfectly content to let the ladies experience that. But I've been present at all three of our our daughter's uh, births. In fact, it really took me by surprise when my wife had given birth to our first daughter and I'm standing there all dressed up in the you know the robe and the mask and the hat the booties and everything like that and the doctor hands me the scissors and says cut here Ah! but I did and you know she had had quite a fair amount of pain And yet, as soon as that baby was born, she could not restrain herself from holding that child and crying tears of joy. Her firstborn child. Well, again, that's an illustration. The travail of childbirth, giving way to the joy of the birth and the fulfillment and having a a child. And Paul says that's like, the creation that labors under the curse right now, looking forward to the redemption of the children of God, because at their resurrection, there's also a restoration of a new heaven and a new earth. They who sow in tears shall reap in joy. That's the paradigm. You know what a paradigm is. It's a pattern and we, we put our little data points of our experience inside of a paradigm, a pattern, a guiding paradigm, in order to make sense of things, well, that, that paradigm, sowing in tears, reaping in joy, helps us make sense of our experiences in this life. So, believe it. Trust God's Word, and trust the God who gave us these promises. Life is not always pleasant. Sometimes it's not pleasant because of our own rebellion against God. But if you are truly God's child, if you are chosen and called by God, he will never abandon you. Jesus said, those that the Father has given me come to me, and I do not lose any of them. He made discipline But in that discipline, look forward to the restoration. When that discipline does its work, think of the pattern of the book of Judges. Think of the teaching of the Beatitudes. Think of the restoration of creation that labors as in the pains of childbirth right now. And that's our experience as well. We're part of that story. And that's why they sang this song when they were going up to Jerusalem to remind themselves of their own history remind themselves of this paradigm, this truth that was woven throughout their history. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would comfort our hearts in times of difficulty, when there are times when we are suffering, sometimes even because of our own sin, sometimes because we live in a fallen world and there are hardships, sometimes because of persecution. And yet, always knowing that you use these things to conform us to the image of Christ. You use all things, and that is one of the great sources of comfort in this life and in the next, is that all things are working for our good, in that all things are working to conform us to Christ. We pray, Father, even as we experience the tears of this life, it will give way to the joy of the life to come, the joy of being in your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.